arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. don't want to be in the middle of this shootout. The Old West settled perceived injustice with the gun. Perhaps it was because it was a frontier and they had a lack of legal mechanisms, and guns were used, as they are now, to enforce illegal activity. In a story, the threat of the gun creates an atmosphere of pending doom, confrontation, and retaliation. Will the criminals outwit the good guys? Will they be punished for their misdeeds? We kind of overlook everything for the action, and the thrill of action, especially in the Old West, is compelling. Before we get back to Episode 4, I will mention motive. Everyone involved in hijacking the silver bars off the Overland 924 has their own personal motives. One of the motives is unlimited wealth. Sam Turner and the Turner Boys want to control the state politically. Bowers, the Pinkerton guy, wants to do his job and bring in the bad guys. So does Jake McBride. Let's get to the action. Episode 4, When You're Dead, You're Dead, by Robert P. Fitton. Chapter 16, Bancorp Pass, June 22, 1882, 5.06 a.m. Well, I ain't killing him. We should just take him in, said Junior. We ain't taking no one in. Hanson's dark hair flowed out from the brim of his wide hat. I'll take the one in back, too. Rhodey aimed at Hanson's head. He looked at Mike and nodded. Then he fired, knocking Hanson off the horse. Mike fired quickly, getting the man in back. Rhodey squeezed the trigger again before the last man could react. Junior was on his horse when Rhodey turned. Junior rode away quickly across the summit and disappeared in the pines down the other side. He's yellow. I knew he was yellow. What now, Rody? Rody eyed the slope and the horses off to the side. He turned to his brother. One more bullet in the head for insurance. Jake sat upright before dawn and held his rifle near the ledge. I know I heard shots. A few miles up the ridge. Soaring bird tilted his head as he listened. Too many shots. Trouble, brother. Jake raised his canteen, filled that afternoon with stream water, and swished the cool liquid inside his mouth. He sensed death in the air as he passed through the moonlight shadows under the pines. The shifted stars and the moon away from the ridge told him most of the night had passed. Sunrise was only a few minutes away. They continued silently under the dark ridge with the milky valley spread before them. We might have to wait for the sun, McBride. Jake stroked his thick beard and checked the hills for movement. You may be right. We could be going in circles. He stared at the sky until the bird melodies filled the slope near sunrise. Two jays darted through the blue above him and perched on the pine branches. He heard a coyote bark to the east. Jake folded the bedroll neatly and placed it squarely on Menowa. The horse snot on scattered grass along the slope. Jake removed his canteen and poured the water into his cupped hands. He positioned his hands under the horse's mouth, repeating the procedure several times as his horse took in the water. Along the bottom of the foothills, the yellow glow between the needle branches heightened and a few rays broke through. He turned back to camp. Soaring Bird sat up and listened. Both men quickly finished packing the horses. Jake dismissed his stomach pangs as he chewed on the last smoked meat as they moved out. As they negotiated the narrow trail in the warming sunshine, his instincts, garnered from war battles, steered him toward the vicinity of the shots. The sun shined through the trees as both men circled the next granite overhang. Down the far side, three bodies blocked the well-trodden trail. Jake leaped off Menowar and ran down the path on foot. 
Levi Hansen's dark felt hat had fallen a few feet on the rocks, and his massive black hair spread over the dirt. Several bullet holes had punctured his leather vest, and blood had pooled in the rock crevice. Jake turned the kid over. Someone had fired into his forehead. These men are from Brinson McBride. Jake, kneeling over Levi's motionless body, looked up at his Shoshone friend. His voice tightened and he held his gun. Levi Hansen. Somebody gunned him down and then came back and got him again. Goddamn cowards! These other men were also shot in the head, said Soaring Bird. Jake surveyed the slope. Boot marks dented the pine needles and led back along the main trail. He walked away with his gun drawn. About 50 yards away, he found fresh horseshoe prints in the soil. The trampled pine needles left no doubt someone had camped here last night. Jake remained squatting and looked up at his friend's silhouette. Levi, Pete Crimmins, Hank Nevins, someone stalked them. Rheingold? Down now, he said, rising. It was a cowardly act. Weren't no shootout. They waited for Levi and the other boys and then ambushed him. Maybe the town sent them up here after the silver. Soaringbury pointed to more tracks in the dirt. McBride, mules have been moved up this trail. Maybe yesterday, he crushed the dirt in his fingers. These tracks are no more than a day old. Jake nodded. More mule hoof marks dug into the needles in the darker soil. I ain't sparing nobody. I ain't waiting for Judge McKenzie or no one else. Rheingold is a dead man. Coltrane dipped his hands into the frigid stream and splashed water over his beard stubble. He was still not sure whether he heard shots last night in the mountains to the west. Bowers had given specific instructions for Levi to shadow the mule train. As he pushed the stream water back through his hair, he wondered what had happened. Coltrane! called Bowers from the camp. The stocky Pinkerton adjusted his suspenders and strutted across the clearing. He put his hands on his hips as he faced Coltrane. I'm not asking the others, but I can tell things by the look on a man's face. What are you saying, Mr. Bowers? You hear anything last night? Coltrane moved a cloth across his face and nodded his head. As a matter of fact, I did. Judge heard it, too. He placed the gunfire maybe three or four miles up the pass. Coltrane folded the cloth. What do you suggest we do? If it was gunfire, they'll be back, or maybe Rheingold and his people are looking for us right now. I've been hoping Hanson got the better of them. I have a bad feeling about all this, Mr. Bowers. We don't know anything yet. Bowers looked back to the men in the camp, preparing for the day's journey. He leaned toward Coltrane. I'm posting additional men up front. I want them fully armed and ready for the fight. I have no doubt there will be a fight now. Coltrane twisted his lips and looked into Bowers' dark eyes. I thought it was just as simple as surrounding Rheingold and getting the silver. That isn't going to happen. It's important that every man knows that. That means handling things tactfully and making sure everyone is fully armed. I know we have the ammunition. As he spoke, Albie's loud cackle spread throughout the camp. Both men turned. Albie waved his hands and gestured wildly toward two of Coltrane's people from the hotel. Well, what the hell is he doing now? That man is a liability. Bowers stomped by the spent campfire, and Coltrane followed him. Bowers! Bowers! You tell him! You tell him! Tell him what? Shots! Shots! That it's definite, right? Asked Bowers. Well, uh... Bowers gripped Albie's shirt with both hands. Did you or did you not hear shots? Well, I, I could have. The judge heard shots. The judge hears like a fox. When he says, then you never heard the shots, you dumbass. Bowers rolled his eyes and clenched his fists. Coltrane thought he might smack Albie right on the spot. As the other men gathered around, Bowers raised his hands in the air. We're moving out. Shots! Shots! shouted Albie. Shut up! said Bowers, and several other men echoed his thoughts. Then they must be dead! cried Albie, pulling out his gun. Maybe they're dead, maybe they're not. It should tell us that Rheingold is aware that we're trailing him. Or at least Hansen was. See, see, was. You said was. He must be dead! <laughs>
I told you to shut up or there'll be more shots right now, said Bowers, clutching his pistol handle. Then he faced the others. Now listen, I want three men, three men who can shoot up front. You'll be given extra ammunition. Sawtooth, he's a crack shot, said Elby. Bowers gave Elby a sickening look as the grizzly Sawtooth stepped through the group. He curled his upper lip and exposed his teeth toward Elby. Elby held his hat and back toward the rocks. He bit, he, he bit a man to death once. Then you best stay away from him, said Bowers, grinning. What about the rear, Bart? asked the judge. Bowers nodded. He's right, Sawtooth. You check the trail behind us. I don't want to be ambushed. Find out what happened. They fire at you, you kill them all. Sawtooth's wild blue eyes ignited as he placed new shells in his six-shooter. With his sharp, crooked teeth still exposed, he crossed the camp to his horse. The rest of you, you ride with your weapons drawn. Have ample ammunition and supplies ready. What are we getting into, Mr. Bowers? asked the red-eyed Doc Talmadge. Well, it should be quite obvious. We're going to fight for that silver. They've probably already reached the spur line. I don't know. We can't stop now. We have to move quickly and reach them. Well, people are going to be killed, said Doc, as if he were proclaiming a new bit of information. Yes, that's why I'm telling you, all of you, if you want to go back to Brinson now, go back. I don't need stragglers. Coltrane saw their frightened faces. No man was going to back down in the face of his peers. Albie kept nodding his head and was about to yell something. Coltrane raised his index finger over his mustache and mouth. Albie rolled his eyes and went back to the saddlebag. A few seconds later, he took several swigs from a small silver flask. How far are we from that spur? asked Coltrane. A few miles, few miles, shouted Albie. He crosses over the Maramonte River and then runs to Stockton. Bowers, his hands on his hips, looked westward toward the taller peaks. Then we can't stop. It'll take time for them to load that silver, providing they actually get a train up there. We're going to get killed. Bowers winced as Coltrane stepped back from Albie's whiskey breath and took in the clear mountain air. He gazed down the rock ledge and then clinched his Winchester. Any glory-filled ambition he had when he left Brinson was rapidly fading into fear as he studied the westward ridges. Chapter 17, Bancor Pass, June 22, 1882, 6.35 a.m. Through the trees, Jake caught sight of Albie and Jim Coltrane leading three men down the trail. Albie pointed at him and then babbled as he rushed up the rocks. Jump in Jerusalem! You're alive, Jake! You're alive! Levi Hansen is dead, Albie, along with Crimmins and Nevins. Albie turned back to the group. See! See! Levi's dead! They're all dead! Jim Coltrane and a stocky bald man in a checkered blue shirt and dark suspenders brought their horses up the rocks. Coltrane looked squarely into Jake's eyes. Is it true, Jake? Is Levi dead? Twenty-three years old. Cowardly murdered. The bald man donned a brown hat and extended his hand. Hobart Bowers, I work for the Pinkertons. I came in with the judge from Carson City. Then the judge is here? You bet your ass I'm here said the white-haired Mackenzie, moving from behind the others. Jake could not bring himself to a full smile with Levi dead. You tracking the silver, Judge? That's exactly what we're doing, said Bowers. But how did you and the Indian know to come up to Bancor? Last I heard, you were checking wagon tracks to the south. Dooley, the uh, cavalry lieutenant, tried to kill me. I shot him dead. He had a hand-drawn map in his uniform pocket. Bowers nodded as Albie prattled on about Jake killing Dooley. He killed Dooley! I know he killed Dooley, that bastard! So the thing about Estrada was a lie. Soaring Bird leaned forward. They loaded the wagons with sandbags from Sorodo Canyon. They split the wagons to Badwater and Yubahibi Crater. You are a uh, Shoshone. I am. You've got more education than all of us here, Mr. Bowers. Bart. Bowers nodded, seemingly accepting Soaring Bird. What did that map say? I'll show you. Jake reached into his saddlebag and pulled out the map and handed it to Bowers. 
Bowers nodded as he unfolded the map and studied the layout. Well, we figured right. There's a damn railroad spur line set up from the Danforth Low to Stockton. Somehow Rheingold knew about it very well. He's not John Rheingold. Well, then who the hell is he? I don't know. Dooley wouldn't tell me who the son of a bitch is, but he ain't Rheingold. Bowers' forehead tightened as he lit a cigar. He's going to spend the rest of his life in jail, no matter who the hell he is. You don't understand, Bart. Rheingold is a dead man. And I'm doing the killing. Mackenzie stepped forward. Jake! Jake, you have to uphold the law! Judge, that man is responsible for the deaths of the men that Soaring Bird and me just buried. Levi has a girl back in Brinson. Hank and Pete have wives and kids. Jake, the law will take care of this. I ain't so sure, Judge, but I know I will. Boris folded the map. Well, my main concern is to stop them from getting that silver onto the spur line. Jake spoke to the group. You know Rheingold ain't gonna just sit back while we politely ask for the silver. You're right. They have to know we mean business, growled Bowers. Coltrane looked at Jake. Levi didn't deserve what happened to him. Jake stared down at his dusty boots. Is there any other way to Bancor Pass? asked Bowers. Nope, nope, said Albie. We're all up Shit's Creek. You spent your whole life on Shit's Creek, Albie. My guess is someone will be heading around that pass to the spur line. Albie remained on his horse. The trail. Trail ain't the only way to Bancor Pass. You can get by them mountains by horse. Once you're up Bancor, you can cross through the forest above the tracks. Then we need to get men up the ridge, then, to see what's going on by the spur line, said Jake. The men we send up there will cover the rest of us. Bowers checked the bullets in his six-shooter and spun the chamber. We're going to have to fight it out. Clever bastard, Rheingold. I really can't believe he pulled it off. I tell you, I'm very worried they're going to get that silver down the spur line, and then we'll never catch them. Jake gazed back at the men. We don't need rest. We're going to keep going. No stopping. I'm going to kill that son of a bitch. Soaring Bird brought his pinto closer to Jake. His dark eyes tightened. This is as far as I go, McBride. It's going to be trouble. No doubt about that. He reached up and gripped his friend's hand. Thanks. I wish you good fortune, McBride. Jake shook his hand. Then Soaring Bird led his horse past the other men. He climbed on the horse and descended the slope before he disappeared between a row of pines on a smaller knoll to the east. Damn savage don't want to fight, said Doc. They'll attack us, but when it comes... Ain't they seen enough killing, Doc? Now they're herded like cattle up in Duck Valley. Ain't cause he don't want to fight. Up ahead, Bowers waved his gun forward, and the group started between the Gray Rock Mountains and Bancor Pass. Chapter 18, Bancor Pass, June 22, 1882, 11.11 a.m. As he rode under Bancor Ridge's heavy jutting rocks, Johnny grew tired of the smart-mouthed, rusty-bearded Rody Turner. Rody had lost his usefulness after he killed the kid from Brinson. All the Turners concerned him. He feared the old man's capacity for revenge if he was not paid. Someday he would use Sam Turner once he was placed in Carson City. The spur line and the trestle rose upward only a few miles west of the massive ledges. Pam would return soon and tell him whether Wheel and McAllister had fired up the train from Stockton. Loading the silver would take hours. Rody conferred with his brothers and Sam next to a clump of trees stuck between the rocks along the pass. Johnny creased his brow and brought his horse toward the Turners. What do you hear? Rody looked away as he spoke. I don't hear nothing but the train being up there. Johnny gritted his teeth. I paid those men well and more cash is coming. I tell you, that train ain't up there. Shut up, Turner. Well, I think we're early, John, said Sam Turner, tamping his handkerchief over his matted gray hair and tanned skin. We moved up here too damn quick. What if he don't come? asked Rody. You ain't thought of that, have you, Mr. Rheingold? You let me worry about that. Oh, I'll let you worry about it, 
said Rody, walking toward Johnny's horse. He looked up at Johnny. You think you're so smart, and the rest of us is some kind of ingrates. But Johnny moved his right hand near his cold handle. You look up that word in the dictionary, Rody? You better watch him, Pa. I wonder if we'll get what's coming to us. Johnny drew his colt slowly and swung the barrel toward Rody. You'll get what I promised. This isn't some backroom card game, Turner. We have silver, slated for the U.S. Mint, packed on the mules. The whole country will know about this real soon. We need that train at Bancor Pass. He pulled out his silver pocket watch with his left hand and checked the Roman numeral face. Quarter past eleven. Well, this is bullshit, said Rody, shaking his head. We need to be in the valley in five hours, said Johnny. We waste any more time and the government will have agents, the army, and everyone else will be all over us. Why don't you go down in the valley and find Wheel, McAllister, McGuire, and the train? Sam nodded and turned toward his sons. All you boys, get your asses back to Stockton if you have to. Find Wheel and the other men. You heard, Rangel. We have five hours. What do you want us to tell him? asked Junior. Get on your horse, Junior. Come on, boys! Let's obey Mr. Rheingold's orders. The Turner boys brought their horses into the deep shadows under the Bancor Peak. Johnny stared at the peak as he spoke to Sam Turner. I don't like this. My boys will find that train, said Sam, but Johnny was not listening. The silver bars bulged in the leather packs and the mules halted along the ridge. Johnny would count every bar once they were inside the freight car, and he would shoot any man seen with the silver. He removed his watch again, and his stomach tightened. For most of his whole life, he was in control. He had never gambled on dreams or hopes, but on the sure thing. Stealing the silver was part dream and part hope. He smiled at the way he had perfectly plotted it in Arizona. He would not lose it all at the last minute because of someone else's incompetence. Rody caught sight of Pam on her black horse heading along the ridge track. He trotted left ahead of his brothers and met her on the tracks above the massive interlocked wood trestle. What did you find out? Train's coming, about a mile down the tracks, she said, pointing toward the billowing smoke in the distance. We'll had trouble with the boiler. Ain't gonna mean shit once he's up the top of the trestle. <laughs> we just roll into the valley. Maybe there's work ahead getting them bars on the train, said Pam. Rody leaned toward her. Hey, Pam, what do you say? You and me spend a little time up in the woods while we're waiting. Pam pulled out a long 44 from her saddle and pointed it at Rody's hawk nose. You never learn, do you? I like a wild woman. Good, then you hire one once you get your cut on that silver. You only sleep with marshals, that it? She cocked the trigger. What I do is my business. You say that again and I'll kill you. That what you told Dunbar? I had a job to do and I did it, she said, keeping the gun trained on him. Just like the marshal, asked Rody, raising his brows. Shut up. She fired once. Rody grabbed the top of his shoulder. A small blood circle formed on his blue shirt. His brothers all drew their guns, but Pam aimed her gun. Put him down, or the next time I won't just graze your shoulder. You're crazy, yelled Rody. If I wanted to kill you, I would have. Rody brushed his shoulder. I'm wondering if you ain't right about that. He turned to his brothers. Junior smiled. You stop your grinning. Been bested by a woman. She ain't just a woman. I don't know what she is. He started down the rock bed below grade. Junior looked over his shoulder down along the ridge. I wouldn't mess with her. She'd wear you out, said Mike. <laughs> She's poison, damn poison, I tell you. Rody moved slowly in the sun. To his right, the vast valley was jacketed between continuous granite rises. His horse shuffled through the gravel, but he felt noise on the ground. Listen, boys, the salvation trains are coming, I hear it. I'm gonna put par in Carson City, said Mike. What if the army gets here? They ain't stupid, said Junior. Rody held his shoulder and leaned to the right. Dark smoke twisted above the ridge pines. Here they come. 
And you're right. The army ain't stupid. None of them are stupid. They just aren't quick enough. We took them all by surprise. The train's thunder grew louder as the thick smoke formed a tapering trail back through the pines. Wheel waved through the open window as McAllister stuck his head out the other side. Rody motioned his brothers back up the ridge. The engine, spewing and hissing, chugged in reverse up the trestle rails. Rody counted two faded green passenger cars and a weathered wood freight car. He grinned at Wheel as he passed, and McAllister waved a gray rebel cap into the air. Well, what do you think now, Rody? asked Mike. Rody looked ahead. I think we're all set. Ryan Gold gets that silver up here. We can go to Abilene and get ready for Pa to go to Carson City. Chapter 19, Bancor Pass, June 22, 1882, 4.25 p.m. Jake stared into the late afternoon sun highlighting the upper rocks and pines. Years had passed since he wrapped his fingers so tightly around his rifle. The tension gripped his stomach like a tightening knot. Bowers had sent Sawtooth along the ridge to scout for trouble. Jake had a sense for trouble, and trouble might be over the next granite ridge. He turned in the saddle as Albie's voice erupted off the trail. A dead mule! A dead mule! Jake dismounted and hurtled through the bushes. Albie hovered over a mule carcass. Harness marks were still imprinted on the mule's short gray coat. Jake looked up at Bowers. Sure as hell confirms my suspicions, Bart. Coltrane, rifle in hand, glared down at the mule. Well, we can thank Sam Turner and Rheingold for all this. Bowers climbed back on his horse. The crack of a gun made Jake swing his rifle upward as he sidestepped between a massive boulder. A second, then a third discharge sent Bowers' horse scrambling under the trees. Well, what the hell is that? Sawtooth! Sawtooth! shouted Albie. Coltrane followed Jake up the trail. He's gotta be dead! He's gotta be dead! We don't know that, Albie, said Jake, mounting Menowah. Shut your trap! Sawtooth galloped in a dust swirl up the wooded trail. He slapped his hat against his horse and leaned forward in the saddle as he jumped the rocks. The horse slid forward into the groove. He held his hat over his head and pointed his six-shooter into the sky. I shot the sons of bitches! Jake brought Menowar ahead of Bowers. What happened, Sawtooth? Dead, I tell you. Two of them, I tell you, two of them were in back. Only two of them in back? Asked Bowers, glancing up the trail. I got them both. Nobody else there. Bancor Pass swings past this last ridge. Coltrane had his rifle in both hands. Do you think the rest of them heard the gunfire? Well, of course they did, Jim, said Jake. He's right, said Bowers, looking up. The rest of the posse converged around the three men. My guess is the trestle is just ahead. The rest of the group talked among themselves. Jake counted 12 men left. Let's get him, Bart. Jake squinted as Bowers lit a cigar. I need a volunteer to head around the pass to Stockton. Meet up with the army. Elby leaped off his horse and ran across the scrub brush. I'll do it! I'll do it! I can tell the army! Forget it, snapped Bowers, puffing on the cigar. You want the job done right, don't you? asked Elby. That's why he wants you back here, Albie, said Jake, and the group laughed. We need you to shoot. Now you're talking. He removed the gun and pointed it skyward. Jake grabbed his wrist and steered the gun back into the holster. I'll go, said Mike Griffin. He had a huge smile, narrow shoulders, and blonde hair. My horse can make it to Stockton if he has to. Good, said Bowers, putting his hand on Mike's shoulder. But I want you to head for San Batista first. The army needs you to head in both directions. If you are able to use a telegraph, I understand. You will ask for Major Kendall in San Batista. Bowers advised Griffin to stay clear of the trail on the trestle. His chestnut pony began a wide loop into the woods around Bancor Pass. Bowers climbed off his horse. He snapped a long, brittle stick off one of the trees and cleared back the pine needles and dragged the point in the soil. He 
This crude map showed Bancorp Peak as a long triangular groove in the darker dirt. He deepened the line where he thought the spur had swung up from Stockton across the valley. Below the trestle, he drew the Maramonte River and the soil. What do you think, Jake? Sawtooth and three men fully armed with rifles up the top of that peak. He raised the stick toward the pointed ledges and the wispy clouds. Yep, we need cover, Bart, said Jake. That leaves the rest of us to move up the pass. He kept the cigar between his teeth and placed his foot on a stump. Slowly he raised his bushy brows and spoke in a constrained voice. We have to kill them all. No exceptions. I thought we were just supposed to recover the silver. Sounds brutal, said Doc. It is brutal, said Bowers. That's the whole point. You want to live, you kill them all. You think Rheingold is just going to let us walk in and start offloading the bars? Well, he might, said Albie, if we scare the hell out of him. Just do as I say, you cockeyed bastard, yelled Bowers, and Albie hid behind Willie. We have to do this, and we have to do it fast, said Jake. Well, when do Sawtooth and his boys start firing from the ridge? asked Mackenzie. Bowers' dark eyes slowly swung toward the judge. You men watch me. When I signal you, you fire and shoot. We don't even know how many men they got. Coltrane grinned at Bowers. Well, we only have nine men. I hate to say it, but he's right. See, I was right, said Albie, stroking his beard and gazing at the group for approval. Damn well doesn't matter, said Jake. How about we just wait for the army, said Doc. Bowers stepped forward and spread his arms. Look, they'll get the damn silver in the valley if we wait. Then they can transport it into San Francisco Bay. I can't let them do that. Anyone who wants to stay behind, stay behind. We're heading up the path. Sawtooth, get your men up the top of that peak. We're moving out. Chapter 20, Bancor Pass, June 22, 1882, 4.45 p.m. The engine's driving steel wheels and main rods locked, and the massive locomotive slid to a stop on the rails. The pug-nosed wheel peered out the open cab window. I told you we'd be here, Johnny! I told you, you bastard! Johnny grinned and slipped across the gravel bed. He placed his shiny boot on the cross ties below the cab. He let a stogie in check the old black locomotive. I would have bet money this train wouldn't have made it two feet up that trestle. And backwards. Good job, horseman. The boiler's having trouble keeping the heat. I told McGuire this was junk. He says we was lucky just to get it. I wish we had the 924. The 924 is outside Brinson. Is McGuire in the valley? He is. They have the wagons ready. All we got to do is chug this old wreck down that trestle and meet up with them. We can be at the docks tomorrow night. Johnny tilted his head back and laughed. Well, damn! We did it, John! We did it! Even in Mason County, I always knew you were too smart for those government and railroad boys. Johnny continued to smile and inhale the tobacco smoke. The mules slowly converged down the ridge trail toward the train in the clearing. Past the engine, the track curved between the blasted granite boulders and the pines along the mountain slope. Once they loaded the silver, a wheel would stoke the boiler and bring the train around the bend to the trestle less than a mile away. Well, congratulations, Johnny, said Wheel. Johnny tightened his brow in the late afternoon sun above the hills. The first mules passed by him toward the train. Well, we haven't done it yet. Ah, you're just too damn nervous, said Wheel. Come on, an old poker man like you getting nervous? Sam Turner spun his horse up the embankment as more mules trucked the silver along the train bed. We have men from Brinson trailing us. What? Johnny threw down the stogie onto the gravel rocks. His face tightened. How do you know this? Shots up in the pass. Well, get Rody and your boys. Rody was shot by that cowgirl. Pam? Well, Rody was pestering her. It's his own damn fault, said Sam. He'll be all right, just washing out the wound. The hell with Rody! Get the men up the trail, ordered Johnny. These men have rifles. You and your boys, have them load that silver into the stock car now. Now! Well, I'll get my boys. 
Johnny grimaced in the sunlight. We all stared at him from the cab. We'll hold off the Brinson boys. Don't worry, Johnny. I'm worried about a lot of things, horseman. Rody, shoulder bandaged, led his horse along the mules. His eyes were wet and his voice shook with emotion. Rody, get that silver into the stock car. Then what? His eyes were wet and his voice shook with emotion. You owe my father a substantial amount of money and land. We did our job. We got the mules. We got Dunbar to blow up the tracks. If you're thinking of not paying up... Johnny held his gun handle. I never said that. Shut up, Rody. I'm making this deal, growled Sam. You just do as I say. Sam yanked on the reins and pulled Rody back with the mules along the train. They argued even as Rody got off his horse near a faded red slatted car. Sam directed his son and the other men to unload the mule packs. He pointed to the stock car and several men dragged more long planks along the rocks to the open door. Sam rounded up the two men who almost immediately mounted their horses and trotted up the wooded trail. Johnny openly displayed his pearl-handled colt from the top of his horse. He lingered along the train where he could keep watch on all the men, but he kept looking up the trail. Junior Turner lifted the first shiny silver bar from an open leather mule pack and waddled to the gravel embankment. He handed it to another man who walked up the plank. Rody positioned himself inside the door and passed the bar to another man inside. Sam, off his horse, stepped over to Johnny. Men are heading back along the ridge. Don't worry, John. Them boys are good shots. They'll hold off anybody trailing us. Well, we're so damn close. You're going to be set for life, and I'm going to be governor of Nevada. I'm going to push my way to the top, just like old Abe Curry. And that ain't the end. There's no telling where the hell we could go. Them bars will get us anything we want. You know that. Time will tell. As Sam started back to the stock car, Pam Grayson galloped along the human chain loading the bars up the planks. She spotted Johnny and slowed. She continued silently along the gravel bed with her hand on her gun handle. Johnny did not trust her. This is getting very risky. I heard about them Brinson boys. Pam, I promised you two bars. Get them before the train leaves. I want to go to San Francisco with you, John. He stared at her legs mounted over the saddle. Her hair was tucked under her dark hat. As alluring as she appeared, Johnny did not want her around after McGuire smelted the silver. I promised you two bars for killing Dunbar. That should keep you going for quite some time. I have my own agenda and I won't be in San Francisco long. I haven't decided. What about my other bars? Forget it. Her icy stare made him think she might draw her gun. She was still gawking as she rode back to the mules. He owed her nothing, but she must have sensed his pending wealth and power enough to sweeten up to him. Johnny felt the same power now. With the proper planning, he would wield that power in ways he could not even imagine. His stomach wrenched and he breathed quickly as the bars moved down the human chain. He never felt pressure like this and would trust no one until the silver was in McGuire's care. Sam Turner, his gray hair scattered in clumps, held his hat as he walked briskly along the mule train. He shielded his eyes as he approached and placed his Stetson back on his head. Looking good, John. How much silver is left, Sam? I'd say we're halfway. They're moving fast, real fast. What about down the trail? What about those Brinson men? Men haven't reported in. I can't tell about the valley until... I'm more worried about the army and the Pinkertons. Sam nodded and trailed Johnny as he paraded along the train with his rifle in his lap. Men looked up at him as he neared the stock car. They had created a five-foot pyramid of silver bars glistening through the wood slats. He would count every bar before the train started down toward the trestle. His confidence returned for the first time that day as he gazed across the ascending silver pyramid. He pulled out his pocket watch and wanted to remember the exact time when the rest of his life began. In a matter of hours, he would be on his way to San Francisco. Keep that pile lower, he shouted. Rody's smirk inside the stock car upset Johnny. He stood with his hands on his hips in the opening. Sure, Mr. Rheingold. For the next 15 minutes, Johnny alternated glances at Rody's bearded profile in the stock car. 
He watched as they removed the last bars from the packs and sent them down the chain to the stock car. Sam Turner edged his horse around the railroad bed. He untied one of his saddlebags, searched inside, and pulled out two long cigars. He handed one to Johnny. Cuban, enjoy it as the boys finish up, John. We outwitted every one of them bastards. I'm taking nothing for granted. Sam struck a match and lit the cigar. The next silver bar was stacked on the pyramid. But it sure as hell is looking good, isn't it? Damn right. I'll say we'll be fully loaded any time now. Sam, I'll wire you once I'm settled. He puffed the cigar red. Whatever help you need politically, I, I want to be available in the future after this thing blows over. The one thing this silver will do is net us power. We may not see it now, but we will. You just make sure your ass and your boys' asses are covered after I leave on the train. We'll head east. We'll do our trading and then go home. The cattle will be on trains to Brinson and no one will be the wiser. Just a, a little business trip for the Turners. Sam held the cigar between his fingers and looked at Pam Grayson atop her horse, hands on the saddle horn and watching the whole operation near the end of the train. Pam made this easier. Well, she'll be compensated for the Dunbar and the telegraph lines. I told her that. Johnny looked away from Pam and back to the stock car. I'm counting every bar. No one's going to challenge you, John. I trust no one. He slipped his foot into the stirrup and dismounted. He hitched the horse to the stock car and walked up the plank. Rody leaned against the sideboards but was silent as Johnny stepped inside the car. His boots clicked across the floorboards. He leaned over slowly and, as if he were seeing the face of God, touched the top bar's cold surface. Again, he sensed the accumulating power he had only dreamed about back in the Gaileyville poker game just a few months back. Well, I gotta give you credit, said Rody from the door as a burly man carried another bar inside, crossed the car, and placed the silver on the pyramid. You ain't as dumb as I thought you were. Johnny removed his colt and kept it aimed at Rody. Count him, Turner. You count him. I ain't your slave. Rody's hands moved upward to his throat and his face contorted. The crisp sound of a rifle volley reverberated around the pass. A thick blood mass now soaked Rody's blue shirt. He keeled over, still holding his neck, and fell out of the car onto the gravel bed. Johnny gripped his colt and leaned around the car opening. More shots erupted like a full battlefield attack, disrupting the silent mountain air. Now on his stomach, he hurled the cigar aside and crawled to the sidewall. He peered through the slats. Men and mules scattered. Someone bounced like a monkey atop the train. He aimed his gun upward and sat in front of the silver. Pam Grayson's voice seeped through the slats. I'm coming in. Pam. In the midst of the gunfire, she swung her body through the open door. Holding her rifle, she tucked and rolled below the bullet-riddled wood slats. We got Brinson men on the peak firing at us. Our men are being picked off, Johnny. Johnny ground his teeth. Wheel has to get this train moving. Oh, Wheel and the other man, they's dead. What? Half your men are dead, she said, standing and pointing her rifle through the slats. There's men coming around Bancor. They gotta be Brinson men. We need to get this train moving ourselves. They gotta stop shooting for that, she said, still looking outside. Damn. I see Jake McBride out there. Johnny crawled forward. Through the slits, he saw McBride and a stocky man fire at the train from behind the rough-edged rocks along the pass. More men unloaded rifle shots from the ridge pines. He did not see the Indian. Damn him! We can punch out the boards back here and get up to the engine. I thought Dooley was supposed to kill McBride, Johnny. He was. McBride aimed his rifle at the train. More bullets hit the car. We have to get this goddamn train moving. Pam crashed her rifle butt into the slats. Come on, Johnny, help me loosen them boards. Johnny wanted to kill McBride as much as he wanted to get the silver to McGuire. Pam kicked the loosened slats with a wild ferocity, exposing the rusted nails as the boards dropped to the gravel bed. For a moment, Johnny thought about escaping down the tree-lined slope into the valley, but he had come too far. She was right. He merely needed to get the train to the trestle incline. Pam wiggled through the slat opening. Johnny sank his fingernails into the slats and squeezed through. He leaped onto the gravel and sprinted along the back side of the train. A few bullets whizzed over his head. He
He passed Pam as he reached the metal-framed engine and grabbed the ladder rungs. Pam followed as he crawled through the cab window. Wheels' arms hung lifeless over the outside window, and McAllister's bloody body lay dead across the floor. We need to release the damn brake, cried Johnny. A bullet pinged around the metal walls. I thought you'd save yourself, Pam. Save myself? She moved along the wall gauges and levers. Don't kid yourself, John. I'm a wanted woman. Jake McBride will have me tried for Dunbar's murder. I'll be hanged back in Brinson. Somebody will kill me. Johnny looked around the opening. A group of other men on horses fired rifles as they raced down the trail. Here they come. Release this train and we can bring the silver to the valley. It's 92 miles to Stockton. I'll kill McBride, said Johnny, looking out the cab window. He fired his colt and knocked a man next to McBride off his horse. Forget about McBride. I missed him. She pushed another lever, but nothing happened. Johnny leaned over her britches. Sam Turner and his boys were gone. So were the mules. Bodies from the gun battle covered the gravel bed up the trail. McBride trotted on his horse with the ball guy between the pines and the rocks. Pam pointed her rifle out the cab and fired several times. They're closing in! Johnny shook his head. I should have killed him when I had the chance. Pam backed to the boiler and moved the levers along the wall. This is it! What? The brake! Come on, help me! She pulled the long metal stick but could not release it. Johnny grasped the handle. They both yanked it back. Very slowly, the rigid lock produced a thud under the train, and the engine's steel wheels squealed against the railroad tracks as gravity pulled them forward. Johnny returned to the window as they rolled toward the trestle. He yelled in a booming voice out the window, There you go, you son of a bitch, McBride! McBride's horse reached the ledge above the gravel bed as the train rounded the incline. Pam pointed up at Johnny and put her arms around his waist. All we gotta do is make it round this ledge and cross down that trestle. Once we reach the bottom of the grade, we get this engine going, Johnny, and all the silver is here. Johnny shoved his colt in her stomach. I'm gonna give you the chance to live. What the hell are you doing after all I've done for you? You're expendable. The Turners were expendable. All of you, he said as the train sped away from the pass. More bullets hit the engine. Now get off. Rody was right. You're a lying bastard. She turned and twisted his gun. If I jump out there, they'll shoot me. You stay here and I'll shoot you. She gazed over his shoulder toward the open cab window. Then let me out the other side. Johnny pulled the gun back and pointed it at the passing pines and bushes. Get out, goddammit! She sidestepped over Wheel's body. When she was at the edge, she backed her long legs over the opening. I could have made you happy, John. A smile returned to his face. The only thing that will make me happy is stacked in the stock car. What about my two bars? Tough luck, Green Eyes. Chapter 21, Bancor Pass, June 22, 1882, 5.05 p.m. Jake and the posse fired at the slow-moving train as it approached the bend. Pam Grayson emerged from the pines along the tracks. She scooped her rifle off the ground and mounted a horse. Jake had an easy shot, but he let her horse hurtle down the tracks. She galloped between the tall pines and down the mountain trail away from the trestle. From the safety of the cab, Rheingold shot a revolver back at the posse. Jake pumped the trigger on his Remington. Bowers peered through his field glasses. The train is sustaining speed, but once he gets to the trestle, it'll be impossible to catch him. This train has to round Bancor Pass before it hits the trestle. I'm going through the woods, yelled Jake as he turned. Jim Coltrane! Bowers squinted and pressed his lips. Well, that is possible. Where the hell is Coltrane? Doc Talmadge, one knee to the ground, looked up from Coltrane's fallen body on the gravel bed. Blood flowed across his white shirt and long coat. Jake leaped off Menowa. He quickly reached his friend. Coltrane formed a crooked smile and pushed out his words in a whisper. It's a damn good day to die, Jake. His eyes rolled and his head fell to the side. Jake looked over his shoulder as the engine rolled toward the bend and more gunfire erupted from the woods. Turner boy's coming up through the woods, yelled Sawtooth. Kill him! Kill him! 
Jake, you cross that ridge. Try and reach the train. You need my help here, Bart. No, we're all right. Get the hell out of here now. Stop that train. As he stepped up, the sun flickered in his eyes. Sporadic gunfire continued behind him as he clawed his way over the rocks. He gripped the tree roots and pulled himself up over the ridge. Then he sprinted between the straight pines and the level upper ground. He breathed heavily as the sky brightened. At the western slope, spreading oaks and the Maramonte River cut the canyon west toward Stockton. The train advanced slowly, but was not yet at the trestle. He sent the dried pine needles flying as he reached the mass of rocks hovering over the tracks below. Steel wheels screeched against the rails as the train approached. A few dozen feet below, the ledge broke into smaller boulders. Jake slid down on his denim pants and gripped the crevices as he edged toward the rail bed. To his right, bathed in the sunlight, the trestle formed a bolted myriad of neatly woven timbers descending in sections from the rock-scraped cliffs. A solid upper platform swung out from the rocks before the rails dipped gradually into the river valley. He inched along the blasted rocks twenty feet above the cross ties. The locomotive steel wheels ground against the rails at the curb. Above the ridge line, the smokeless stack progressed silently through the woods. The train gained speed as the wide cowcatcher appeared past the pines. Jake thought about Jim Coltrane, shot dead, and Levi, buried up in the hills. When you're dead, you're dead. He bent his knees as the engine cab passed below. He leaned forward and leaped into the air, landing in a car full of split wood. For a few seconds he lay stunned in the wood pile. He breathed rapidly as he stared up at the thin clouds. The back of his head ached as he grabbed his hat off the split logs and drew his colt. He imperceptibly climbed down the pile toward the engine. Rheingold leaned out the side window as the train approached the trestle edge. Jake aimed his colt but had trouble standing in the wood pile. As the train rocketed forward, he fired and missed his target. Rheingold reacted quickly and disappeared below the metal lip. Jake rolled across the chopped wood and scrambled over the side of the moving car. You can't stop me, McBride! Rheingold shouted from the engine. Jake gripped the metal side panels as the tracks and the gravel bed passed below him. He grasped the vertical pins with the car coupled to the stock car. As Rheingold called out again, Jake hoisted his body up the side ladder. Your time is run out, McBride! Jake crawled onto the roof. He waddled on his belly across the swaying car. A bullet passed just over his back as the shot echoed off the rocks. He swung his body over the edge and climbed down the opposite side of the car. The angle sharpened and the trestle timbers below cracked as the train gained speed. Jake held the metal rungs of the side ladder and peered down the stock car. Rheingold leaned out and fired. Jake ducked back as another bullet flew into the air. He hung on the ladder above the canyon and the fast-flowing river far below. He positioned himself on the sliding metal coupler between the cars and gripped the lower supports. Then he crawled under the moving train. Only a few feet above the blurred cross ties, he clawed his way under the stock car. His heart thumped and his ribs throbbed from the desert flood as he held onto the supports below the car. The cross ties passed only a yard below his back. Rheingold's dusty black boots and pant legs were visible at the next coupler. Like a trapeze artist, Jake brought his body diagonally to the outside of the car, but his muscles ached. He pulled himself up through the car opening, across the bloodied floorboards. Light flashed between the slats and the strewn silver. He stepped over the scattered bars and crouched along the slats. From above, Rheingold swung through the opening and kicked Jake. Jake yanked his coat and slammed Rheingold's chin, sending him back into the silver, and his gun spun across the floorboard. You son of a bitch! Rheingold focused on Jake as his gun hand drooped. Don't ruin this, McBride. There's enough silver here to set us for life. You're responsible for killing friends of mine. You sent me like a fool to Yuba Hebe. Rheingold's blue eyes opened wide. Well, don't be a fool. I'll share the silver with you. Jake spun his gun upward. This is the end of the line for you, Rheingold. We'll see. Jake steadied himself as the train rumbled out of control down the trestle. The rushing wind pushed through the car and the sunlight between the slats. The government will deal with you. You think you're so smart, McBride. 
Jake held the slats, but he kept the gun pointed at Rheingold as they moved faster. You almost did it, Rheingold. Only justice got in the way. I'm for cowboy justice. You know what that is, McBride? Jake shouted over the wind, whipping into the car. Go to hell, Rheingold, or whoever you are. Rheingold produced a crisp smile. Who do you think I am, Marshal? I know you ain't no railroad man. I know you come in on the stage from San Jose to Eureka and then to Brinson. Rheingold tilted his head back and laughed. The car shook as they raced down the trestle. Is that the extent of your investigation, Marshal? Shut up. Or what? You won't shoot me unless I come at you because Marshal Jake McBride follows the rules. Jake slowly smiled. I'm the one with the gun and the ticket to the noose, you murdering son of a bitch. Rheingold stared at the silver pile. Let me tell you something, McBride. If I've shot anyone, it's because my friends were killed. Because the law isn't always the law. The light and the shadows alternated through the slats. Is that what you did in Texas? What makes you think I'm from Texas? You shot up the town square in Mason County. I know, because I was there. I saw it. Rheingold smiled and shook his head. You've got an excellent memory, Marshal, but you don't know who I am. Nope, I don't. What a shame, he said, and then he fully smiled. Come on, Marshal, we'll split this pile. Before my men meet the train, you go your way, I'll go mine. I don't care about no silver. What the hell's wrong with you? I don't need to be discussing nothing with you. Right, said Rheingold, frustrated for the first time as he turned away. The law in Nevada is the law. Bancor Pass, June 22, 1882, 5.17 p.m. The train normally would have braked instead of reaching this ungodly speed. As the car pitched from side to side, Jake wondered if the jostling would send the locomotive completely over the trestle's edge. He steadied his left hand on the floorboards as the motion spun Rheingold off the silver pile and more bars tumbled to the floor. The car slats and the supports creaked as the wind blew off Jake's hat. He stuck out his gun as Rheingold struggled and slid against the far wall. Damn train needs to slow down! What's the matter? yelled Rheingold through the clatter. Getting scared, Marshal? Jake leaned toward the opening. The magnificent gray rock formations extended to the few cloud puffs in the western sky. The river moved through the rocky canyon and into the forest. As he turned toward Rheingold, his head exploded in pain. He fanned the gun at the blurry outline of Rheingold and the slats ahead. Jake waved his gun as blood flowed into his left eye and he fired three times at the shadows near the opening. The blood meandered into his mouth and in the gyrating train, the light faded away. Chapter 22, San Batista, California, June 24, 1882, 8.22 p.m. Jake first saw a wavy yellow flame. Then the glass globe came into focus. Brightly colored blankets were draped across rough-hewn wood logs inside the cabin. A dark-haired young woman in a light cotton dress carried a white linen rag. Can you hear me, Marshal? I hear you just fine. You're in my home in San Batista. She had a soothing voice and huge black eyes. My name is Clara, Clara Nettles. Can I get you some water, Marshal? Jake nodded his head. She scooped the water from a tall wooden bucket and carried the ladle across the room. Where's the train? asked Jake. She lifted the metal ladle to his lips, and the cold water descended his dry throat. Jake took another swig. That train came down the trestle. Let me get Major Kendall. She scurried out the open front door. A short time later, a thin army major in a clear blue uniform rushed through the front door. He had blonde hair and a rusty mustache. I'm Major Kindle. We thought you might not wake up. You took a blow to the head. How are you doing? I just had a little snooze. Jake gazed into his brown eyes. Where's Rheingold? Well, I was going to ask you that. Wasn't he on the train? Sure he was. He was my prisoner inside the car with the silver. That damn train was wild down the trestle. He must have threw one of them silver bars at my head. Kendall sat in a little wooden chair. We took the train over. Once it came to a stop in the valley, we found you holding your gun on the floor. Jake opened his eyes. His left eye was swollen. The silver. 
Well, it's that's all there, but no Rheingold. I don't see how he could have got out of that train. He couldn't have waited till the train stopped, or he would have taken my gun. Well, I'm sure we'll find the body. Jake closed his eyes for a second. What happened up at Bancor? Kendall pressed his lips. The old man, Turner, is unconscious, a shot in the head. The judge and the men from Brinson are in my headquarters in town with Bart Bowers. Three of them, Talmadge, Connor, and the one they call Sawtooth. Turner could tell us Rheingold's real identity. Rheingold is responsible for killing my friend Jim Coltrane. I'm aware of that. And now he's free. Marshal, I tell you, Rheingold is dead. You said it yourself. There's no way he could have jumped off that train. That trestle spans Bancor Canyon. Unless he climbed down. No, we'll find the body in the morning and that will end it. Jake sat up for the first time. No, Major. <laughs> it won't be over till I see Rheingold certifiably dead. San Batista, California. June 24, 1882, 9-11 p.m. Major Kendall opened the heavy chip door and Jake followed him inside. Doc Talmadge turned from the brass bed. Another clear oil lamp cast an orange hue over Sam Turner's pasty skin and flat eyes. Bowers sat at a small wood table with a single milk glass lamp. Is he dead, Doc? asked Jake as he removed his hat. Well, he might as well be. He was babbling earlier this afternoon, but nothing about Rheingold. How are you, Jake? You shouldn't be up. Don't you be worrying about me, Doc. Well, I questioned him, said Bowers, now standing. He was calling for his wife and boys. Jake nodded and glanced at Sam's disheveled gray hair on the black striped pillow. I have some information that may be of assistance to you, said Bowers from the desk. It's about the 924. Jake furrowed his brow. What about the 924? Jake, my office contacted a Mrs. Matilda Parsons who rode with Rheingold from Carson City to Brinson. She was in Fresno City. We received a response to our telegram. Jake moved back to Doc Talmadge. Yeah, I remember her. She stayed at the coal train. Yo, big mouth! Big behind! Said Albie from the back. The liquor was strong on his breath. Jake pointed at Albie. Get the horses set for the night, Albie. Well, she was on her way home, said Bowers, glaring at Albie. Horses are in the stalls at the Richmond livery, Jake. Then go feed him again, Albie, barked Jake. Rheingold spoke extensively about Rhyolite City, Arizona, all the saloons and the gunfights. There was a shootout there last fall, so I telegraphed my office in San Francisco about the 924. I wondered if he came out of Arizona and not San Bernardino. I reckon he was lying. He was. The 924 was contracted out by the U.S. Treasury in November 1881. Arrangements were made from the silver smelting areas in Pinata, Arizona, to bring the silver bars up to the Tucson station and the 924. Soldiers were commandeered from Fort Huachuca in Arizona Territory. I believe there were 13 soldiers. Well, they're all dead, said Jake, and their bodies buried together. What can we expect for help now, Bart? Bowers paced across the floor as he spoke. Secret Service and Treasury agents should be out here in the next week or so, and soldiers from Fort Churchill will be heading to Brinson. Don't help us here right now. Let me ask you, Bart, do you think Reinhold is dead? Till we find a body, I say no. I thought so. Well, suppose his body was taken downstream, said Kendall. That river, the Maramonte, is not that wide, said Bowers. We should be able to locate a body in the morning. If we don't, I assume Rheingold, a.k.a. Gordon, is still alive. And we can follow him up in the hills, both from Stockton and at this end. Not with horses, you won't, said Kendall. Jake stroked his mustache as he watched Sam Turner fading from life on the bed. But he visualized Arizona Territory. So, he must have learned about this deal down there in Arizona Territory. I should have talked to Mrs. Parsons at the coal train. Oh, don't blame yourself, Jake. The only man I blame is Rheingold. Maybe he was in the mining camps, said Bowers. Everybody down there must have known that shipment was smelted to go to the government. Jake nodded. That's my feeling. Them mining camps, or maybe even them saloons and whorehouses down there. And even the army would know, said Kendall. But this man, he thought he could actually steal the silver. 
said Jake. I have the names of the other passengers who were on that stage when Rheingold pulled into Brinson. Bowers returned to the desk and pinched a piece of yellow-lined paper off the stack. Ed Farley, you know. Rheingold is not on the original manifest out of San Jose, but a man named Josh Gordon is. Even though Gordon signed on the stage from Eureka to Brinson as Rheingold. Jake slowly turned. Stupid mistake. He never thought someone would know he came from San Jose to Eureka. Even the clubber make mistakes. Back at the bed, Sam Turner's convulsions drew his attention. The old man rocked back and forth across the bed and was calling for Johnny. Jake and Bowers both rushed toward the bed. Johnny who, Sam? asked Bowers from the other side of the bed. Get them. the mules. Get the mules, Rody, before you upset, Johnny. Sam's gray eyes were stuck open as he exposed his yellow teeth. Jake held his shoulders. Tell us Johnny's last name, Sam. Jake backed off and the old man fell back on the pillow. This time he didn't move. Well, damn it, shouted Bowers. He was going to be governor, said Albie. Governor! Jake caught Albie in the corner of his eyes and sneered. Doc, you and Sawtooth take the stage back to Brinson and let everybody know what happened. Albie and I are heading out to the trestle at daybreak. What about Turner? asked Bowers. Jake pressed his lips and again thought about the bloody Jim Coltrane on the ground. Bury him with the rest of the killers. Recovering at an outpost at the bottom of the trestle, Jake begins to unravel just how Ringo set up the robbery with his buddies from Texas. With Ringo on the lam, Jake is determined to track him down south to Arizona and the silver mines. This will involve historic figures of the Old West, and Jake steps into Johnny Ringo's historical narrative. Next week, we join Jake McBride in Arizona Territory in pursuit of justice. This is Fitton, carrying the U.S. mail and taking the oath of mail, contractors, and carriers on the Wells Fargo stage to Arizona. I'll be back next Saturday night to finish the last episode of When You're Dead, You're Dead. Good evening. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.